You're listening to Office Hours, a series of curious conversations with Belfer Center experts. I spoke with Sir Peter Westmacott, who has served as Her Majesty's Ambassador to Turkey, France, and most recently, the United States. During his 40-year diplomatic career, he also served in Belgium and Iran. In 2016, he was a fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics and a senior fellow at the Belfer Center. So let's talk about being ambassador. That sounds, sounds great. What, what, are the, what are the perks? What are the perks of being an ambassador? See, I wouldn't use the word perks, would I? Because it's all part of the tools you need to do the job. But the honest answer is that as ambassador, especially in a nice and interesting country, you tend to get to live in a really nice house. You get very well looked after. Um, and you have plenty of staff who are there to do their own work, but you are the head of a team, so they're there to, to help you out. Whereas here, I'm pretty much sort of on my own at Harvard. If I'm doing my own research or I'm doing my scheduling, I ask my wife's help, uh, or if I need to know some information about something or I want to do some media work, I have to do it. Whereas in the past, there were, there were people there whose expertise I could tap into. So uh, you, the lifestyle was, was tremendous, but it was very hard work because you know on a given day I might be doing a couple of breakfasts, a lunch or two, a reception, a dinner, having loads of people to stay in my very nice official residence uh, and that is a it's both a perk uh, and a privilege but it's also quite a big responsibility because you've got to make sure that if you're living in these fantastic surroundings which we often are as ambassadors that you are making good use of those facilities for the public good. How often are you entertaining? Is that is oh, every day. Every day. Oh, yeah. Every day there are people. Over. Oh, yes. Every well, day. And some, sometimes several times a day. Different events in the house. Must be, must be disorienting. No. Um, it's not disorienting. It's, uh, you get used to it. It's part of the job. You have to enjoy doing that. You've got to enjoy people's company. You've got to be pleased to entertain. And you've got to be aware of the need to make people feel they've come and either had a good time or had a useful time. Or even possibly both. The embassy has always struck me and a lot of people I know as, as these sort of magical places. They're, uh, they're, most people don't have the privilege of going into an embassy. When we think of the British embassy, I kind of just imagine you know, a bunch of Cadbury eggs uh, all over the place. There's tea, plentiful, it's infinite. W what is it like? I mean, what is it, what is it like working in an embassy? There a lot of Cadbury eggs? Um, it's a great, <laughs> I mean, it is a great place. Yeah. And a lot of people do not have the, the privilege of coming to it. We try to open the doors as much as we can. We have an open day once a year uh, around Europe Day uh, and we use the house, as you will recall, as far as we can to bring people in who are interested in the United Kingdom or who potentially are of value or who are simply important in terms of what they do in the United States and therefore who we need to know. We want them to share the British hospitality that we can offer. So living there is, as I said before, it's a, it's a privilege, it's a pleasure because usually these houses are wonderful. You don't have as much privacy as you would in your own home, and some people complain about that. We just got used to it. Uh, you close your bedroom door, uh, and you've got a certain amount of space which is your own. And what we tended to do was, if I was not entertaining people who were part of the job, I would say to the staff, okay, downtime for you, uh, we'll be self-sufficient. We may or may not have some food in the fridge for the weekend or for the, for the evening. Uh, and so we just uh, you know, relax and, and do our own thing because you've got to make some time for your own life, your own family, your own uh, personal administration and so on. But living in the house is, is fabulous. Each day you wake up, you look at this amazing house, the furniture, the flowers, the garden, you enjoy it. There are people looking after it for you. And it's, it's very special. Um, but you're always aware 
that it is um, it's both a responsibility and a privilege. Well, it's not talking about being ambassador. To what extent are you uh, representing the government, and to what extent can you actually influence policy itself? Um, how do you manage that? The answer is a, a bit of both, because yes, you're right. I am representing the Queen officially. I am HM Her Majesty's ambassador abroad, as my colleagues around the world are. But you're also representing government policy. You are. We are non-political civil servants. We serve the British Crown, the British government, whatever that government happens to be. We don't change with the change of, of political party or change of prime minister. So we are professionals whose job is to represent the position of the government of the day abroad and to negotiate on behalf of that government to promote the United Kingdom, do the business, uh, support exports, investment, and so on. But also, uh, we are frequently in a position to influence the policy making back at home. Indeed, we are part of it, either by video conference or by written submissions or by conversations with politicians or colleagues, because if there's policy being made which is relevant to where you are serving, then you've got something to say about it, and you might well want to nudge it in a certain direction. So you do both. And, and what about when you disagree with the policy? Um, is that difficult? How do you manage that tension between promoting a policy that you are unsure about? Is well, that ever become? Yeah, it does, it does become an issue sometimes. And the way you try to do that is, of course, you intervene before the policy is set. And you say, look, I think the policy should be X. Uh, and there are the following reasons why it ought not to be Y. And policy is determined. It is then your job to carry out, implement, explain that policy. Oddly enough, it's, not, it's, it's very rare that on something that really you feel personally about that the wrong conclusion is made from your point of view and you end up having to sell a policy that you think is, is, is the wrong policy. It does happen on occasion. And then you've either got to do what a lawyer does, which is you take the brief and you make the best of it and you swallow your own personal opinions. Or if you feel very strongly about it, you, you can, if you wish to, you can resign on a point of principle. There were one or two British diplomats who left not only the job they were doing, but the diplomatic service as a whole, in protest of the war in Iraq in 2003, for example, which was quite a divisive issue for a number of us. Let's transition a little bit to the US-UK alliance. The president in 2011, or maybe it was 2012, the president used the term essential relationship um, instead of, or maybe in addition to, special relationship. And I guess when I think of essential versus special, I think but isn't special better than essential? Because I think essential, I think of like vegetables or essential nutrients. Yeah. And a baked Alaska is special. That is something that you want. Essential is what you need. How do you see that? Do you know, I never fussed about that terminology. Generally speaking, I would not talk about the special relationship because I think uh, there's a certain arrogance, there's a, there's a certain level of expectation there. And it sort of suggests that other people are not at the same level. The reality is if the president of France comes to Washington, he's welcomed as old, America's oldest ally. If Chancellor Merkel comes, she's welcomed as whatever it is, you know, America's indispensable ally uh, in uh, Europe. If the British prime minister comes, he will be welcomed sometimes uh, as uh, the leader of a country with which there is a special relationship or the special relationship or essential. You know, all those nice languages out there. The, the important thing is the substance of it. You know, is the relationship still special? And then there's, you, can, you can get very excited about whether it's the special or a special relationship. If it's a special, there's others too. You know, what does all God that forbid. Mean? You know, 
God forbid. So I, I just didn't fuss about that and got on with trying to focus on the reality of it. And the reality of it is that there's a, you know, there's a huge amount there, which is some of it unique. You know, the stuff we do at the defense and intelligence cooperation level is unique. And some of the stuff that we do in terms of you know, foreign investment in each other's countries is, is greater than we do with any other country in the world and vice versa. So there's a lot of stuff that is pretty remarkable uh, between the Brits and the Americans. And not least because we have got this shared language, which means that in terms of film and television and culture and you know, Shakespeare and theater and, and so on, there is an extraordinary uh, level of cultural identity between the two countries. And in, but in terms of, uh, so after, the, after World War II, um, you know, the United States was uh, never more, had never been so present um, both in the UK and on the European mm -hmm. continent in terms of uh, troop station forces that they kept, um, kept there and bases that they, they built. Uh, with the pivot to Asia um, on the part of the United States in the last several years, um, has that got elements of the UK and, and broadly part of Europe worried? I think it did get some people in Europe worried. It never bothered me and I like to think that it didn't bother the British government because it always seemed to me that you know, Asia hugely important China a rising power. China for 18 of the last 20 centuries the most important single country in the world in economic and political terms. So uh, why would we not all feel that China was important and the rest of Asia, India emerging fast, China what China is uh, and so on. We, we got used to dealing with Japan as an economic giant and then it you know, started to slumber a little bit uh, and so we were focusing on other parts of Asia. But that's essential because if we don't em embrace with, engage with, uh, pay attention to Asia, then there's a risk of Asia going off and doing its own thing in a way which could be antithetical, if you like, to our own interests. And then the other thing I would add is that however much attention one might be paying to China, and the British government pays a lot of attention to China as well, the reality is that when the going gets rough at the international level, we're all obliged to engage with our like-minded partners and allies. If you go to the Security Council of the United Nations, which is what you do when something goes seriously wrong in terms of international security or peace, who do you work with? You work with the Brits, the French, the Americans, uh, Russia and China. You know, those are the five permanent members of the Security Council. Within NATO, America is working with its like-minded partners. In terms of dealing with the way Russia has behaved in Ukraine, you're dealing with your Western European NATO partners. In terms of dealing with some of the European crises, the things that flow from Syria, you know, what, not, not a lot of point in talking to the Chinese government about political or indeed security threats in terms of Syria and the 450,000 people have lost their lives there. So I think the point is that on so many of the really important international issues, America and its allies naturally come back together to try to seek solutions. That is not instead of, it is as well as what I regard as a perfectly welcome uh, additional engagement with Asian countries. Are there any areas you feel that the U.S. and U.K. Uh, could, could work on or could focus on that they're not already, or areas of cooperation that have not been fully seen through? If you look at the, the big global challenges at the moment, what are we going to do about more free trade and what are we going to do to ensure that people are not scared of it as they are now? How do we take care of the losers in free trade? What are we going to do about security in East Asia and the South and East China Seas? What are we going to do about the threat posed to Eastern Europe and indeed potentially to the NATO alliance by Russia? How are we going to counter the threat of ISIL? What are we going to do to try to lower the tensions between Sunni Arabs and, and Shia Iranians and, and Iranian friends in the region so that we don't have yet another 
explosion and drama in the Middle East. Are we going to finally find some way of bringing about a two-state solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict? a lot of problems. If all those issues yeah. which are out there, we're addressing them. Yeah. Um, they're on our agenda already. And I, to be honest, I can't think of very many that, that we're not trying to work through together. People make the analogy uh, in thinking about American power and where America's headed. Everyone's freaking out about you know, American decline and uh, is America going to be on top? And the analogy is made that the United States is following a trend line uh, that w about where, where Britain was, say, about 100 years ago. Do you think that's a fair, accurate analogy? Where Britain was 100 years ago. <laughs> um, I myself don't see the United States as a country in decline. I think America remains the global superpower. It remains the leader of the free world. Uh, it does a number of things which are a, an essentially American way, which can frustrate and upset other parts of the world. You've got an interesting political system which takes an awful lot of time, an awful lot of money uh, to produce its results. Uh, what you've got at the global level, I think, is an America which, on the back of recent uh, overseas military engagements, adventures, call them what you like, Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya in particular, is pretty cautious about committing blood and treasure to the solution of other people's problems, uh, or indeed creating problems through its own initiative. I think that applies to a number of the other Western democracies. In the United Kingdom as well, there's a pretty strong sense now that the war in Iraq was something that was a mistake, or that was at least poorly followed through. That seems to be the sense here. Afghanistan went on for longer than any recent war in, in, in recent memory. Uh, has it been an unmitigated success or has it been you know, a war of continuing attrition where we found it very difficult to deliver in the long term a sustainable Afghanistan? All those questions are out there and I think therefore when problems arise in other countries, many of which remember nothing to do with America's making or indeed Europe's making, and the question arises well there are bad guys there or there are terrorists or there's a civil war or there's foreign interference, we better go and fix it. It's not surprising that people are saying, well, I can see what the problem is, and I can see that we could easily send two or 300,000 troops tomorrow, but are we sure that it's going to make the situation any better? And are we sure that we can bring those troops home safe and sound, uh, leaving the situation in a better position than beforehand? And people are asking those questions. I don't think it's wrong to do so with a natural sense of caution. I don't think that's the same thing as declinism or isolationism. Uh so along that point of challenges, current challenges, are, do you see any threats to the American uh, Anglo-American alliance? Or were there ever moments in your tenure uh, where you worried about the alliance? There are always moments when you're doing a job like I was doing when there are bumps in the road, when there are things that are difficult to handle, uh, annoying, difficult to resolve for whatever reason. It might be one part of the government, it might be something on the Hill, it might be something in the White House or vice versa. Um, there, are, there have been a number of, of issues which were you know, not always that easy to handle. Uh, we had a, a, a moment when the British Parliament voted not to join America in taking military action against Bashar al-Assad when he used chemical weapons back in 2013. And we had to manage that. I mean, the United States Congress, I don't think, was any more enthusiastic than the British Parliament was. But uh, you know, that was a little problematic. How, how, do, you, how do you manage that? Um, well, you have to explain what happens. This is the way democracy functions. Yeah. And you explain the reasons why, and there were a number of different reasons why it came out like that. 
And then you have to ensure that moving forward, you, you put those sort of things behind you and you engage in an effective way at dealing with the problems. If, if that is your policy of trying to solve the problem, stop the slaughter, deal with the appalling effects of people like ISIL, who are filling the vacuum in countries like Iraq and Syria. You have to go back to your parliament, you have to win the debate, but you also have to explain what's going on. We had a few issues over whether Britain was or wasn't a fully paid up member of the NATO alliance. Were we spending the 2% of our GDP on defense that we had asked others to commit to? Well, we do. But there was an issue when people saying, well, where are you guys? And where are you with military capabilities? And so I had to address that. British government collectively addressed that. And actually, we've got a remarkable program now of, of spending on new equipment and improving the capabilities of our armed services, which is, which is very dramatic. So we deal with those things. We had some issues in terms of the way regulators and the Department of Justice treated British companies here in America when things have gone wrong. There was an issue of a BP in the oil spill, whether BP was being treated fairly or not in the, in the state of Louisiana and by the DOJ. There were a number of British and other banks, some American by the way, some foreign, who felt that they were unfairly treated over different to, issues to do with either sanctions busting or money laundering or, or some other form of transgression. Um, after 2008, but actually not related to the meltdown of 2008. So those were issues which I had to get involved with and try to manage. So bumpy issues. Brits at the moment are you know, unhappy that there have been some rather severe changes to visa arrangements. You could no longer come to America on a simple ESTO uh, visa waiver as you could before because America now says if you have been to or you were born in or you're a dual national of one of 20 different countries you can't get into America without a visa anymore. Boom! The shutter comes down, people can't come here and do their business as easily as they could before. Um, th that's a problem. Yeah. That is America's right. Will European countries reciprocate and make life more difficult for Americans coming to their countries? Probably not. But you have to manage a lot of these different issues and it gets complicated. There's a there's a joke about diplomats. They, the, the, the diplomats, diplomats are known to be very eloquent, uh, very good. Of course, we are speaking. Uh, I pretty much agreed with every single thing you've said. I'm like, that's <laughs> absolutely brilliant. No, but when you're when you're managing relationships like these, uh, so the, the joke is is that the diplomat can tell somebody to go to hell in such a way that that person will look forward to it. Yes. Are you trained to do that <laughs> since like you were a kid? How, how did you? No. How were you able to do that? No, not at all. Um, you know, I, I like to say to members of my family, as well as others, uh, there are more ways of winning an argument than leaving the other person with a sense that he's lost it, which is, in a sense, the same point. I think you have to do a number of things. You've, you've, first of all, you've got to actually enjoy other people. Secondly, you've got to have a respect for the other person's point of view. Maybe not too much, otherwise you can't make up your mind or you can't distinguish which is right and which is wrong. Um, you've got to have an ability to listen. And you've got to understand that the other person has to have something from a negotiation. In my judgment, most negotiations which are 100% successful for one side and zero for the other don't last uh, and cause huge resentment. And almost certainly, um, probably not a real negotiation because one party hasn't understood what's going on. So you, you have to apply a number of different principles like that to try to ensure that you have an outcome which is which is mutually acceptable and has a chance of lasting. What happens when diplomats are talking to diplomats, though? Because then I can see a situation where... Oh, then we have great fights. <laughs> is that right? What are those yeah, about? sure. And we can disagree 
passionately about the relative positions of our governments. Diplomats are not beyond trying to score points off each other in, in terms of banter or uh, just point scoring about the British position or the French position or the Israeli position or whatever it happens to be. So, you know, there's, there's all sorts of uh, stuff like that, which is all part of the, of the, of the daily life. But generally, uh, part of the job actually is to ensure you've got decent relations with your colleagues. And some of the most, I think, rewarding work I did in DC was when I would go on the hill with my French and German and Russian and Chinese colleagues, uh, and we're standing together there as the P5 plus one and the EU ambassador as well, uh, explaining why, for example, the, the EU nuclear deal sorry, not the, but the, the Iran nuclear deal, was something which was important to our governments as well as to that of the United States government. And then it's important that we are putting together and we are delivering the same message, and, and we can do that stuff. Yeah, there's, there's also a saying about the United States and the UK that they're two countries separated by common language. Yes. Um, and you've spent a lot of time in D.C., not just as ambassador, but you were here uh, in, the, in the 1990s. Um, it, it, I lived briefly in, in London and, you know, found that there were terms like, you know, I would say... Well, pants, for instance, in the UK means undergarments, and in the United States, pants, I mean pants, right? So, <laughs> so what, what, are there times That's that you are a translator, or are there times where you're, uh, you know, shifting idioms? How did you, how did you deal with that? Yeah, you do have to be careful. And sometimes you can just use a throwaway phrase in English, which might mean something extremely vulgar in American, uh, or, or in reverse. Mm -hmm. So you, you've got to be aware that some of the stuff, or, or, or just a look of incomprehension. Sometimes we will say something and people... Have you had moments like that? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. I often, often have moments like that. Don't ask me to repeat them. <laughs> okay. Either they're not printable or, uh, or I've forgotten them. But um, sometimes in America, if I'm watching a political show, if I was watching Jon Stewart or something, he would say something which to me is totally harmless and it's beeped out by the, uh, the censor because it's a bad word. And then other times he will use language which to the British is even more offensive. You know, he, he will say, you know, what a dickhead, what an asshole or something, <laughs> which we would never have. Right. But if he says, oh hell, then yeah. somebody pushes the beep. So there's a, there's a different gradation of yeah. what's acceptable language yeah. on US television compared to the British television. It's kind of bizarre. But then there are, there are words which do mean things. To, here in Harvard, you've got some terms which are just bizarre. If somebody says, I'm a history concentrator. You know, what the hell does concentration mean? I don't know. And then my wife says, I'm going to go and audit some courses. I don't understand what audit courses mean. An auditor to me is somebody who looks at the accounts and sees whether you're spending money properly. So there are, there are words that mean different things in our two languages. Um, is, is, are there, is there some sort of, uh, I shouldn't say training manual, but are uh, Britishers who come to the United States to start serving, are they given some sort of um, orientation of some sort or are they? We are, it's a good question. We're trying to do more of this. Not so much watch out for the, the cultural gaps. We probably ought to do some of that as well. But we do not do as good a job as we should with what we call induction, with, with orientation of um, new people who arrive from the United Kingdom, haven't lived in America before, coming to work in a British embassy or British consulate. Um, and one of the things we're planning to do is to try to raise our game so that new arrivals do have a couple of weeks of, of orientation to try to help to them to avoid falling into traps like that, but also to have a better understanding of what goes on here, because it, it's it's very easy to think that America is just you know a much bigger, more prosperous, more buzzy, more innovative, uh, more diverse form of Britain. But you and I know that it's actually a very different country. How are you with American accents? Are you pretty good? Not great. <laughs> okay. I can understand most of them, but not all of them. And don't ask me to do any no, mimicking. Don't worry. 
Um, so switching a little bit to British British culture, uh, you've spent a lot of time outside of Britain. Um, yes, I have. And was wondering what what you think Britain's greatest contribution to cuisine has been. Because I've been <laughs> to Britain and, and I have tried your pot pie and I think it's fantastic. But there are some naysayers out there. And I was wondering what your favorite foods are. You know, in Washington DC, we used to deliberately, of course, use quite a lot of British food. So we imported a lot of British cheeses. We, when I was in France, I remember one of my French friends in Paris looked me in the face, dead serious. You mean they make cheese in England? I was mortified. I was <laughs> offended. So I immediately decreed that all cheeses served in the British Embassy in Paris from then on were going to be British cheeses. And they are very good. Uh, but we bring in Scottish smoked salmon. We bring in Angus beef from the United Kingdom. Uh, we have uh, Welsh salt marsh, salt marsh lamb, which is one of the most tender and tasty uh, lambs. So the, the raw materials are as good in Britain, frankly, as they are in, in many other countries. And, and we've got amazing oysters and salmon and seafood and, and, and so on as well. In terms of the actual dishes, I, my own view is that the international cuisine is, is now so international that you, you've, it's hard to say, well, that's specifically French and that's specifically a British or American. Um, and I think the things that we do well, you know, some of those roast beef and some of those fillet steak things, remain very good. Uh, the, the people who make the, the different sauces that go with it, extraordinary. You've got more three-star Michelin restaurants in Britain now than you have in France. Really? So for one reason or another, the quality of the restaurants, along with the prices, uh, has risen pretty dramatically in recent years. Good reasons to go back. Lots of reasons to go back. Do you miss it? I mean, you spend, when you spend that much time out of a place, um, does, it, does it strengthen your bonds to the country or does it erode them? You're right, I've spent a lot of time outside the UK and unusually the, my last three jobs were all abroad as ambassador in three different countries. But what I, was, I always did, and it's easier when you are uh, the ambassador, I, it, part of my life was to stay in touch. I had children in the United Kingdom, but also I was back for political gatherings, uh, meetings of senior ambassadors. I saw a lot of political, business, military people who came through. They always came to stay in my house. So I was able to stay in touch pretty easily with what's going on. And with internet communication, social media, and so on, it's, it's not difficult to remain abreast of the, de of, of the political debate and, and the, the general sense of the country and, and what's going on. So, would I miss living there? Yes, but you know, I do the job that I do. I, I followed the career that I followed because I really am interested in other countries and other languages, and I'm, I love living abroad just as I love going back to my own country. Earlier, you'd mentioned uh, you'd mentioned NATO, um, and a lot of a lot of folks think that it isn't as relevant an organization today as it was during the Cold War. Um, and it gets challenged a little bit here on the borders uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, what is your sense of NATO? It's hard to remember, but in early 2014, which was when we held the last NATO summit, which was in South Wales in the UK, there were people saying, well, why do we need to have a NATO summit? And people were not queuing up to hold it. We decided that we would act as host. And this was before all the dramas in Crimea and Ukraine uh, broke out. Uh, it's also because we like to think that we're not bad at organizing international conferences and gatherings. And so we uh, put that on in the fall of uh, 2014. It turned out to be an extremely important NATO conference because there was an awful lot to talk about. And it was a combination of what are we going to do about Ukraine and Russia and 
and Russian bad behavior in Crimea. It was also what are we going to do about the capabilities of the alliance because if you're going to have an alliance that matters you've got to make sure that the member states are spending enough money on equipment and that they can make a difference if they have to if, if Article 5 or other provisions of the alliance are called in because the security of one is the security of all and you've got to make sure that that is credible. So I think today, especially after what happened earlier on in you know, Georgia and South Ossetia, which were not NATO countries, then what happened in Ukraine, not a NATO country, but the nervousness of the Baltic countries, which are NATO countries, about Russian intentions, Turkey, for example, which has had a, a, a difficult scrap with Russia recently over the shooting down of a Russian plane which entered Turkish airspace. Now, all this means that the NATO alliance, I think, remains very important. The world is very unstable. NATO machinery was instrumental in the airstrikes in Libya when the Security Council authorized action there to stop a humanitarian disaster in Benghazi. I don't think anyone's suggesting that you don't need NATO anymore, that it's passed its sell-by date. It was set up, of course, as part of the post-war, Cold War world in order to try to ensure that the, the democratic West was able to protect itself against the Warsaw Pact and, and uh, Soviet aggression. But I think it's got a different purpose now. It's got new members, of course, uh, and it, it may get involved in some of the territorial issues linked with the, the prevalence of extremist terrorism, of ISIL and so on. It's not at the moment, uh, but it's got um, a very important reassurance role at the moment to those countries which are members. And I think it's got an important dissuasion role in terms of trying to stop other countries uh, committing unacceptable acts of aggression towards neighbors. We're switching gears back and forth. So when I think of an ambassador, and traditionally speaking, um, you know, the idea of technology, um, tweeting and, and selfies and things are not, um, uh, have, have challenged the role of, of diplomatic representatives. Do you think that ambassadors in, in the diplomatic corps should embrace those uh, changes? Some do, some don't. We have some ambassadors, mainly amongst the, the younger ones, who love social media and are tweeting all the time and have tens of thousands of followers. We have some who do very little. You've got some like me who do tweet, but I don't do 10 a day. And I don't think there's any point in tweeting unless I've got something to say. Um, I also worry a little bit that the use of the prevalence of social media can mean that messages get confused. I mean, uh, I had several members of my staff who all like to tweet, well, okay, but are they tweeting as individuals or are they tweeting as spokesmen of the British government? And if so, are we ensuring that there is no confusion in the messaging that we're putting out? So you've got to be a little bit careful about the coordination of social media messaging. But I think on the whole, we've adapted to it pretty well. I used to have somebody, two people in my office who helped the technical part of my tweeting and watched for responses. Um, and then when I came here to Harvard on my own, I've had to learn to do all that stuff by myself, um, to tweet, to how do I send a private message to somebody who's following me. There's been some big mistakes. How do I, you can make big mistakes. How do you send stuff that's only going to some people, not to everybody? Uh, what about attaching those photographs? Is that the right photograph or not? You know, all those things you start doing for yourself. And I've learned, more or less, uh, how to do that. And it's, it's quite good fun. Uh, but it does require a degree of organization and, and self-discipline. I have to consciously say to myself, oh, I better go on Twitter. No. There are people I know in the media world who, who go first of all to Twitter to see what are the trending stories and to find the links. 
to the things they want to read. In my case, quite often I run up against pay barriers from material that I want to read, and if I haven't got a subscription, I can't find it through Twitter. So I've then got to start again. I'm not yet as totally dependent on and linked to Twitter, and I refuse to do LinkedIn, and I, you know, there's a number of other things that I'm not on Facebook. But I did regard it as part of my job, and it is now a part of my life. Does it, so you don't see social media as actually changing the role of the ambassador, as someone who is now almost directly, you know, directly connecting? Well, uh, I do. With, with I do, but, but I think it's um, some, some do a lot more than, than others do. You know, yeah. The French ambassador in Washington, D.C., does a lot more tweeting than I did. Yeah. He likes that stuff, yeah. and he likes um, you know, the, the, the to and fro and the controversy and the, and, and the cut and thrust of the debate. Uh, I was a little bit different. Um, I do think it's changed the role. I think it is a very important part of what we do, but I think all the other things remain important as well. Thank you so much again, Sir Peter. <laughs> Thank it's you. It's an absolute pleasure. <laughs> Office Hours was produced by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. 